0: Good evening to you all. Oh, you're a couple days in now, huh? Only got about, uh, what, 24 more to go or something, 26, seven, eight. It's interesting, you know, how much we can actually suffer by projecting ahead. (laughs) Isn't there a Biblical saying something like uh, uh, sufficient to the day is the evil therein or something? I think that's kind of an encouragement to, uh, you know, not borrow trouble. There's a whole way in which the, the art of practice has to do with trimming down your relationship to what you're experiencing. Trimming it down. What is she talking about? The Buddhist path, as I understand it, is a way of radically clarifying and simplifying our relationship to reality. Of recognizing and being able to to see through and gradually let go of the delusions that that we carry, often quite unconsciously, that are a source of both complexification and torment. For instance, the thought, oh, I've got to do better than I'm doing or my retreat is going to be terrible. And then when I go home, you know, I'll feel like I wasted my time and my money and what will I say to my friends because I won't be able to, you know, claim uh, victory Isn't it interesting how we can we can suffer in real-time uh, from something that's basically an imagination about what we think we don't want to have happen in the future? Or sometimes it comes across uh, in another kind of way where we're sitting and it's it's like, Oh, this is going well. This is going well. I can see. I've got it now. I'm just going to like, you know, get build on this. And, you know, this sitting was good. I can hardly wait to come back after lunch. And then, of course, you walk in the hall and you sit down and it's like... You know, what happened to that, that clarity of mind? And then you start with a self-examination, like, well, oh, what am I doing wrong now? What am I doing different now? You know, we kind of look around and try to figure out what the formula is and tweak it. Isn't this true? I-, I loved uh, Anushka's example of uh, you know the baby in the height chair, and uh, you know she used spoons more often. It's tippy cups, but you know taking it and, and then. And that's, that's how we are, right? We're problem-solving machines. I mean, it's kind of a complex thing to be a human being and, and to figure out things we need to figure out in order to survive and um, know how to care for our bodies and know how to find food and maybe find a, a partner, and you know, let alone uh, know how to code or something like that <laughs> it's interesting with the movement towards uh, virtual reality now now we've got the opportunity eventually to voluntarily become fully absorbed in fantasies not of our own creation which I don't know maybe a step up from being fully absorbed in fantasies of our creation but most of the time we don't really have the experience that we're creating them. They just kind of create themselves, right? You're sitting on the cushion and all of a sudden like some thread of a memory or some some idea about a plan comes up and then the mind is out there and it starts spinning perhaps in very vivid kind of ways, a whole scenario, uh, either pleasant or unpleasant. And... In this uh, mind-created world, we get lost. We're in it. It sweeps us away. At some point, it spits us out like a, a, I don't know, a whale on the beach or something, and there there we are. It's like, oh. What was that? You know, what was that last 20 minutes? That trip that I was on. You know, we have these remarkable minds that have this capacity to remember the past and anticipate the future, um, to interpret immediate experience, to look at What's going on? What's making it happen? You know, what can I do right now to, like, get it to go the way that I want? You know, make the next mind moment the way that I want it, or, I don't know, be able to catch the bus on time to, to get to school. <laughs> we have to do a lot of kind of projected thinking. It's kind of required of us in order to survive. But to figure out what's going on with the mind and how the mind works, to get a sense, a handle on the kind of causation about what makes us happy and how we can, how we can be um, well and awake moment to moment, That takes a lot of investigation. That's drop, you know, we drop a lot of tippy-cups from the height chair in the process of figuring that out. Because it's just not clear. Looking at the the structure of the Buddha's teachings, and thinking about Bhante's talk the other night, where he was talking about hindrances. um, The five hindrances. I was really struck as I was listening how often the phrase, when he was describing, like, what causes it to arise, what causes a hindrance to arise, how many times I heard the uh, refrain, unwise attention. Unwise attention, which basically means the mind is either attending to something other than what would be useful to attend, or the way that it's looking at immediate experience is dysfunctional. And that way of looking at immediate experience or relating to immediate experience in a certain kind of way opens the door to the uh, conditioned arising of these uh, painful states of mind. So, having said that, we have to acknowledge there is causation in the arising of immediate experience. And part of what causes the arising of an immediate experience. And I'm talking now about what happens in our, our subjectivity, in particular what happens in the heart-mind, has to do with how the mind is attending to what's present. Now obviously we don't control, for instance, Um, the truth of past conditions or past conditioning. Things that have happened in the past have happened in the past, and there may still be factors from that that are in play now. For instance, if you were raised in a circumstance where there was a lot of anger in the home, then perhaps what that means is you yourself may have a propensity towards towards anger, having seen that acting out, or maybe there's a propensity for fear. So we can't say we cause our experience in the immediate, in that kind of way, right? Because we have not only the causes and conditions that come from the past, but we have present causes and conditions that are outside of our span of control. So if we were, for instance, all of a sudden to hear like a lot of ambulance sirens or something like that, the mind would know what that meant. And just on a biologic level, we would probably get a big surge of adrenaline, of cortisol, right? Be like, oh, what's going on? Something's going on. I hope they're all right. What's gonna You know. We don't control that arising within us, right? In that sense, we're biological beings. We're wired to respond to things in certain kinds of ways. And the the more primitive, the more primal parts of our of our bot our mind are brain, nervous system, you know, they're quick actors, right? Quick actors, we haven't experienced it. We don't even uh, see it arising. It's just like suddenly there and overriding, for instance, the recognition of what's going on and the reason and things that seems to be seated more in the prefrontal cortex under certain... Circumstances, stuff happens, and then we have an experience. It's like all of a sudden your heart's pounding, and you know, you feel like you want to throw up or something. So, we don't control immediate experience, we don't control what arises, and yet. There is the potentiality in terms of how we can educate and train the heart-mind. There is the potentiality to learn to take our seat in the middle of the field in which all of these experiences arise and pass away, come and go, come and go. And it's an interesting part of the Buddha's teaching where he basically says that how we attend to our immediate experience determines whether the mind becomes more enmeshed with suffering or whether it moves in the direction of liberation. His teachings work on many, many different levels, on many different scales of of time and causation. He teaches us that the immediate experience and how we relate to, to it, how we hold it, what our context is for that immediate experience, is the PowerPoint. Because the immediate experience, the present moment experience, is actually something in and of itself. But it's also the seed for future arisings. And learning how to attend with wisdom to what's actually there in the present is the door, way to freedom. As part of this process of learning how to attend in the present moment with wisdom, it's important for us to have context, right? We're actually not exactly like the baby in the high chair dropping off the tippy cups. because we have the capacity to learn and know and assimilate the framework of the Buddhist teachings so that we have context, right? If the baby picked up a book and could read and could understand, they'd go, oh, gravity, you know, will pull things down if you let them drop out of your hand most all the time, their experiment would be much shorter. And our experiment in finding how to not suffer can be much shorter if we understand the framework of the Buddhist teachings and let that inform our understanding of both our immediate experience and how to hold that, how to relate to that. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. You don't know the Dharma until you have some understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Because meditation alone is, is not it. Right? Meditation is like two parts of the Eightfold Path. And if you look at where they are in the Buddhist framework, they're seven and eight. So let me talk a little about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and then I'm going to focus on uh, the first two steps of the Eightfold Path and how they inform... Our understanding of how to relate to the present moment. So the Buddha himself was uh, a big experimenter and very analytical. One of the things I find so interesting about him is a uh, a human being, was that he had such a highly developed analytical mind, such um, unsurpassed pattern recognition skills, but he was equally developed in the human qualities of a a good person. He was equally developed at the level of the heart. at the level of uh, emotional understanding of others. Uh, And that particular blend is really remarkable. And it's interesting because that particular blend, in a certain kind of way, is a pointing to the direction of how our own hearts and minds proceed as we develop them. We develop both the kind of intellectual-cognitive part of it and we develop the qualities of the, the heart. And the two things feed each other. So what do I mean by developing the, some of the qualities of the, of the mind first? For you to just understand that you're doing this practice and doing this retreat within a specific framework and have some understanding about what that is helps inform your sitting. So let's talk about the Four Noble Truths first uh, and briefly and then we'll talk a little bit about the Eightfold Path and how it feeds in. So, one way to understand the Four Noble Truths is that it, it's uh, the Buddha's problem statement <laughs> and then his, uh, his uh, prescription for high-level prescrip- prescription about um, what causes the problem, what it looks like when the problem is, is resolved. And the particulars of how to do that, the particulars about how to resolve the problem. So the first noble truth, of course, is the truth of dukkha, the truth truth of unsatisfactoriness. And basically, you know, he says humans, not just humans, but humans, uh, we've we've got issues. <laughs> 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 right? We got we got a dilemma here we got a problem old age sickness and death sorrow lamentation and grief separation from what we love the experience of what we find repellent the incessant nature of change you know just the stress of always having to adapt to Stuff. It would be great to, if you could have a set point for your practice, you know, like a selectomatic or something. You just like turn it to uh, awake all a- afternoon. Lots of meta. <laughs> but, but we we don't have that, uh, and and the fact that we don't have that that that's a, uh, even those positive wholesome things are conditioned arising. That shows you the instability uh, of reality, the instability of our, our subjective experience, the fact that it's always changing and it's not under our, our control. So this is, uh, you know, less than optimal from our perspective, is it not? What with the death and stuff? So then, the Buddha says um, there is the uh, possibility. There's uh, there uh, there's a a a cause for uh, what you might call discretionary human suffering. The kind that is self-inflicted would be too narrow a way to put it, but you know, the, the kind that arises in the mind because we don't get what's going on. You know, we haven't figured out the tippy-cup dilemma yet. And so we thrash about and, you know, do things that are really counterproductive and against the interest of our happiness. And he says, you know, the, mostly the reason we do that, this is deluded craving. It's delusion but the way uh, it expresses itself is in a particular kind of craving. We just don't kind of like get the rules of the game. We don't get what's going on, so we don't know how to uh, work within the parameters of reality as it is, so that we're maximizing the upside and minimizing the downside. He says we don't have a picture. We don't. We just kind of like think think things uh, are a way that they aren't actively misunderstand it. So we thrash about. We want to be happy, but we don't know how. And then in the third noble truth, he says, you know, there, there, there is a way to not do that. <laughs> and the fourth noble truth is his prescription in the Eightfold Path of what's involved with learning how to not suffer unnecessarily. In other words, how to cut through that pattern of being lost in delusion and governed by the craving that flows from it. That craving always putting us in a state of discontent or resistance to what is present causing us to do things that kind of deepens our enmeshment in delusion. So he says, you don't have to do that. There's a way to turn it around. You can learn what's important. You can understand what's going on and you can cultivate the mind so the mind doesn't get trapped, doesn't get lost in its own misunderstandings. So when the Buddha then presents the Eightfold Path, he's, prevent, he's presenting to you his solution. So if the first noble truth is the problem statement, the Eightfold Path <laughs> is the action steps. Any Grant writers in here? Does <laughs> this is sound kind of familiar? Like, what's the problem? Okay, we've got this going on, we need to dot, 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 But the dot, dot, dot is all relying on having a first, the right understanding of what the problem is. We all know that there's a problem. All human beings, you know, unless they're like completely out of it, know that there's issues with being human, right? Because we all know our our own suffering. We can see the suffering of others. We all recognize that. But unless we have access to the teachings, we don't really know what to do about it, because our understanding of the problem is not deep enough. And and we see this all the time, you know, like the untrained mind or even the, even the trained mind. Uh, you know, feeling some kind of distress or being in some kind of mess and, you know, kind of flapping about, trying to you know get something to replace that experience or fix it or all the rest of it but there's not enough clarity often to really be successful in in doing that because we don't we don't see it all there's enough clarity to know we want out out of it but we don't know the particulars but the Eightfold Path is responsive to the Buddha's deep insight into the nature of the problem. And so it is really comprehensive. And, you know, I'm not a scholar type. But I do find, you know, the longer I practice and investigate, I find more and more in the teachings, more and more depth, more and more connections between parts of the teachings. Coming up in my own experience, you know, spontaneously arising as as intuitions, or particular gestalts of understanding, So, even though an initial step in understanding the framework is, you know, knowing what the Four Noble Truths is and the Eightfold Path and being able to, you know, say what what it is, the investigation into this in depth is a lifelong and most rewarding and interesting journey. Because it, like other parts of the Buddhist teaching, is onward leading. So let's take the first of the the Eightfold Path, wise view, wise view. The structure of the teachings is that the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path interlock. So the last step of the Four Noble Truths refers to the Eightfold Path. And the first step on the Eightfold Path, wise view, refers back up to the Four Noble Truths. So this is an interesting uh, translation of the first step of the path, path, wise view. You know, even just to the uh, a lay hearer, of this you would say, wise view, wise view. What's being said there? Oh, is that like one of those things where? You know, you're broken hearted because you didn't make the soccer team and, you know, then your dad says, well, I know, honey, that's disappointing, but on the other hand, you know, now you can, you know, spend more time doing your music and you're probably good enough to <laughs> get a scholarship to college kind of talk. Well, maybe there's a little bit of that. In. There's a, a certain kind of way in which how you look at things really makes a difference, Right. The wise view, from the Buddhist perspective, is the view that is in accord with reality and how it works. So he he starts with how things actually work. How they work in a way that is observable and confirmable to us individually. Just possible for us to see and experience for ourselves. So wise view relates back to the Four Noble Truths. And then there's this other part of wise view called mundane wise view that has right at the beginning of the Eightfold Path a very important distinction. And that distinction is related to karma. And the understanding is that Actions that arise out of delusion, aversion, or craving are born of suffering and result in more suffering if we double down on them and follow them. And actions born of generosity, loving, kindness, compassion, and wisdom are onward leading and when we act from those we move in the direction of freedom so he's saying there's a law in reality that operates such that you can either either get on board with the ascending or descending currents in terms of your own development of heart and mind, in terms of your own relative freedom of heart. You know that biblical f- a f- a phrase about, you know, uh, reaping what you sow? There's a kind of way in which our intentional actions and are always planting seeds of future arisings, in addition to what we immediately experience. So he says, this is, this, is, this is an important thing to know. This is what you want to cultivate. Generosity, goodwill, compassion, wisdom. And this is what you want to let go of. Delusion, aversion, craving. So there's a binary there, and it's it's not just a moral binary, but it's a um, consequential binary. It's not just like I did a good thing or I did a bad thing. But I, I acted unwholesome wise intentions i acted on unwholesome unwise intentions one goes one way in terms of our our developmental cycle in terms of shaping of our heart and mind the other one goes another direction it's kind of like well what do you want you want <laughs> you want more suffering once you acknowledge that you know greed aversion, and and craving are suffering states. You want some more of that? (laughs) Does that sound good to have some more of that? Or would you rather have generosity, goodwill, kindness, wisdom? But to even know that that distinction is really important at both a high level of understanding but also in terms of immediate choices and attitudes of mind, is very, very important information. Now when I say it to you the way that I said, said it to you, you're, you're probably going, well, yeah, everybody knows that. Do you think they do? It would be surprising if everybody knew that because um, you know, just looking at the evidence of how how things are, I would say there's um, that's not necessarily a formulation that would spontaneously arise in the mindstream of uh, most humans, and yet they are still subject to the implications of uh, the truth of that. So the second step of the Eightfold Path is wise intention, wise intention. And this again, this is a a whole other statement about and coaching about what you want to develop in yourself. So the Buddha says wise intention is related to cultivation of renunciation and the cultivation of goodwill and compassion. These are these are the things that you would do well to develop and let inform your understanding about what appropriate response is to both immediate experience and future experience. And you can see in a certain kind of way, you know, there's echoes of uh, a repetition with mundane wise view. It's kind of tracking in the same direction, but he he pulls out this this factor of intention because of its karmic potency. So I was just talking about karma in the step of mundane um, wise view. Here again with wise intention, those of you who know some of the teachings around intention, you know it's very it's very powerful. Wholesome intentions, unwholesome intentions, feed different directions. So let's talk about renunciation first. I can rem- remember once I was at IMS and in the med hall, and Christine. Uh, Feldman was there uh, teaching and, I don't know, for some reason uh, she was in the hall like as a guest teacher to do Q&A and I can remember one of the things that, that she said was um, she felt that renunciation was one of the way uh, under-taught aspects of the Buddhist teaching. She said, you know, we tend not to teach that to Western audiences very much. We, we tend to kind of like skip over that part or soft pedal it. Or... And then some wise ass in the audience uh, raised their hand and said, well, don't you think that's because renunciation sounds a lot like denunciation and like we're not on board with that? It's like, let me keep my pleasures. I don't want to have to give them up. Of course, that's not really what renunciation means. It's not about giving up pleasant. It's about giving up thinking that uh, the point of uh, everything is to maximize the the pleasantness and that that's the sole value uh, set that you uh, prioritize. It's more along those lines, as I understand it, and developing the capacity of mind to actually be able to let go. It's more about a mind that is sufficient unto itself and doesn't need to always be getting, getting, holding, keeping, looking, for more. It's kind of yin power in a way, renunciation. And then the, the other, of course, is the cultivation of compassion and goodwill kind of, which of course are faces of each other, right? It's like compassion, goodwill, compassion, goodwill, compassion, goodwill, compassion, goodwill. So I take it that the fact that this is the second step of the Eightfold Path means that that should inform our practice of an understanding of all the rest of it. So by the time, for instance, you get to the next steps of the path, which are all about sila, you could see them as actually a, a renunciation of harming and the practice of goodwill and compassion, right? Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And then when you get to wise effort, there's a reiteration, again, of the moral binary that we saw in mundane wise view. Because if you look at the four parts of the four great endeavors that are talked about in Wise Effort, it's about, first of all, doing what you can to mitigate the unwholesome, i.e. the states that come out of delusion and are suffering states, to mitigate those, to not feed them, to be willing to let them go. And to recognize and cultivate, support, encourage the wholesome states. Then, of course, then you get to the meditation pieces, right? Mindfulness and concentration. So what does that mean for your your practice here on the cushion? What means your practice here on the cushion happens within this whole framework that I've just described. So in doing your mindful meditation practice, your insight practice, you're training the mind to bring mindfulness and a mind that lets go, and a mind that's compassionate to your immediate experience as it arises and is known within you. That's what you're bringing to the practice as you're sitting here being with the breath, with a sound or with an emotion or with a body sensation. It can be infused with a kind of kindness. It can be infused with a kind of allowing, of non-insistence that is an aspect of renunciation. And of course, this is part of the magic of mindfulness. So mindfulness, well, first of all, let me, let me say that an image that comes to me very often in thinking about this whole process of uh, bhavana, of development, uh, one way that sometimes is translated is cultivation, cultivation. And that's an interesting word. For me, that has a lot of agricultural resonance. And this process really is a lot like agriculture, including the the time scale, right? You don't just like, you know, like throw a bunch of seeds out there and, you know, like the next day go out there and expect that you're going to have a tree. But there are things that that you can do for the desired result, right? You want that tree, you prepare the soil. You nurture the soil. You fertilize the plant as it develops. You you water it. You know, you shield it from the from the deer. You want that tree, you, you nurture it, you plant it, you care for it, you nurture it, you develop it, you grow it. If it's got aphids on it, you pick them off. <laughs> A lot of mind aphids in the sittings. <laughs> the mind is dry in the sitting, the mind is parched in the sitting. You give it some meta, right? The mind is sleepy in, in the sitting. You give it a little bit of light. You know, you give it wholesome reflection. You bring up energy. You bring up effort. So, th- So this is interesting because the process really calls on you to bring the parts of you that are already developed and accessible to you in the moment. To recognize those when they're there, which in and of itself will strengthen them. But when the parts of you that are not yet developed or which are suffering are present and there, You do an Aikido kind of thing. You actually take what is already developed in you and you bring it to the suffering, uneducated part. Because there's no way that we can just like hop hop over our patterns of mind, right, our habits of mind, our conditioned tendencies of mind. You know, it's not like plastic surgery of the soul or something like that. (laughs) So then what what do we need to do? We have our Dharma understanding. We have our Dharma framework. We have our aspiration, we have our commitment, we have our developed paramis, we have our mindfulness, we have our compassion, we have our understanding of what's called for, oh, oh, what's called for renunciation, compassion. Oh, what would would support mindfulness right now? we have the capacity to recognize mara that talk bonte gave the, the other day was for a number of reasons but it, it, it was all about helping us to recognize mara i see you, mara i got you bud got you ma i see you mara uh-uh not gonna how oh, are you still here that's all right, I'm not going to do that anyway. No, I think I'll just keep sitting. Not going anywhere. Got some resolve going. No, I don't think I want to strengthen that tendency of mind. <laughs> I think that's a good one to, to investigate. Since it's here and it's not going any any place right now. Let me actually take mindfulness. Oh, remember, what, what does mindfulness do? What is the role of mindfulness? What's the second of the seven factors of awakening? What does mindfulness do? Investigates. It looks into it. It actually brings that capacity for real-time knowing of experience that is wholesome and supported by renunciation, by compassion, and actually turns towards it and says, Well, what is it? Okay, so what, what is it? What is it to feel? Fear. Fear is like this. Unpleasant, kind of cold, tight in the belly, impulse to bolt or whatever it is. Ah, fear. And the compassion goes, It's okay, baby. It's okay. It's fear. Yeah, it's okay. The untamed parts of ourselves show themselves. And then what do you do? Well, the wise part of you, the already developed part of you, needs to take stewardship. You know, just like that part was a minor child and... was acting out, right? So to wrap it back around, you know, we don't know very often in the immediate sense why we're having a particular experience. Sometimes we might be able to see particular causes or conditions that are creating it. We don't necessarily know most of the time, like, why am I feeling this? Sometimes in in practice meetings, um, people will say something like, this is happening, and this is happening, and then I did bump, 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 basically describing um, or assuming responsibility for a particular arising and then being perplexed about why they did it. Why did I do that? Or why did I... And then I did this, and then they, they're kind of like mad at themselves because they did it. You ever have that feeling? It's like I was sitting there and I was doing all right, and then all of a sudden I was fantasizing, and you know, I did, I did, I did, I, did, I did, I did, I did. There's, it's the you're not doing it. You might not be particularly skillful in that moment of relating to it, and. Uh, undercutting it but we always don't always have wise attention available to us isn't that true i mean even if we recognize what wise attention is and want to have it with us always we don't always have it right i started by saying you know the mind is not like a selectomatic So can we acknowledge that and recognize that and actually maybe even find some relief in that that we don't control most of the time our immediate arisings? Not that we wouldn't like to. Because again, you know, our, our whole setup, our biological bias is towards... You know what would be pleasant and easeful, but then you know we get get all this other stuff, and it's not right, and we don't like it, and we're trying hard, and we still it's still happening. It's wrong, but it's not. It's conditioned. It's conditioned arising. So if you follow the path of the Buddha, you follow the path of disentangling yourself from a dysfunctional relationship with your own subjectivity. Then, over time, the mind gets much clearer about what it can influence, and controlling what it can't. It doesn't go around borrowing trouble so much. Not that trouble won't come. <laughs> but it starts to recognize through the experience of practicing and what is onward leading and what gets you more tied up in knots, which way you want to go when you're at the fork in terms of how how to relate to something that's present. So how do you how do you learn this for yourself? Well this whole process that you're engaged in is experiential learning, immersion experiential learning. You're all in your own little labs, you know, hearing the instructions and trying to follow the instructions and then Things are happening and then you're recognizing what's happening, maybe. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're present, sometimes you're not. But you've set the intention to be present, which means you'll be more and more present. Agriculturally speaking. (laughs) Can that be okay? That it's agricultural? So that's where We're really drawing on the paramis, drawing on your resolve, drawing on your aspiration. Really comes comes into play because it's an uphill process, right? We're we're working, um, we're working against some organic, natural tendencies. that turn us in the direction of looking for and seeking immediate pleasant experience and that's not one of the one of the choices on the selectomatic So within the the truth of this tapestry of, you know, shadow, shadow and light. This is where we reside. Can that be? Can that be okay? Given that we can't change it. We can empower ourselves. There's, there's a reason that it's called awakening. Awakening from misunderstanding. Awakening from misplaced or futile thrashing against reality. So y'all in some deep stuff there. Hmm. How amazing really, how wonderful that you're your life has come to this, to be in such a, a place, undertaking such a journey. How fortunate you are. How rare this is. May the benefit of offering and hearing this Dhamma be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you all. Thank you for listening.